let's get right into it. Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, however, No, we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. And they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. Now, right off the bat, three things to notice. And this mic's just going to drive me nuts tonight, but that's okay. Three things to notice. Number one is that the Lord does not go down to Sodom. He sends the two angels on down to Sodom, but God himself does not go down to the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. John wrote, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God sends the angels on ahead, messengers for him, bringers of his wrath, he doesn't go on down because he will not abide where sin resides. This gives you something of a picture of how bad Sodom and Gomorrah must have been that the Lord says, I'm not going down there. I'm going to send my emissaries, but this is where I stop. The Lord doesn't enter Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't bring his presence into the presence of that degree of wickedness. Psalm 66 verse 18 tells us, if I regard wickedness, now listen to this, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. How do we regard wickedness? Well, the phrase regard simply means to look at, to experience, even vicariously, not necessarily to engage in, but just to be in the presence of. And the psalmist writes, if I'm even regarding wickedness, the Lord is not going to hear my prayers. He's not going to hear and respond to me. And that verse really rattles my cage. Because I can't tell you how many times I sit in my own living room with the TV set on regarding wickedness. Last night, Cheryl's flipping the channels. And she came to, was American Model? Is that the one? All American Model, or whatever that reality show is where they're trying to become the next best model and what they were doing in the moment where she flipped to that channel and she quickly changed it was the models and I wasn't in the room thank goodness you know I might have been well let, you know I need this for my study tomorrow night <laughs> anyway what they were doing is for last night's I guess task or job the models there were four of them left had to be photographed completely nude in compromising positions together two girls together this was on TV last night. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And people wonder, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Why don't I feel like the Lord is in my life? Why is it that, that I, I go to God and I, I get no response? Perhaps it's because we live in a culture where we even ourselves regard wickedness. Now listen to this and, and, and mark this tonight. Lot is a righteous man. Now he's going to do some amazingly unrighteous stuff in this chapter. Mind-blowing, unbelievable, just depraved kind of stuff. But the Bible tells us he was a righteous man. 
we need to look closely at Lot tonight. Because I would put to you that as people of Christ in this room, we are righteous people. Not because we're all together, but because Jesus has claimed us. Because we are covered by His blood. That is my righteousness. However, even a righteous person like Lot, living in Sodom, spends much time regarding wickedness. The Lord doesn't even go down to Sodom. And Lot's down there. And I'll put it to you this way. If you feel distanced from the Lord, you might want to check your internal indicator. You might want to check your heart and ask yourself, what is it that I am regarding? Cheryl was in a book club. I keep picking on Cheryl. But she was in a book club with Christian women, mostly, who were reading books together. And this was back when we were living over in Anacortes. This was a year, maybe two years ago. And they were reading through these different books. And someone suggested a book. I don't even remember which one it was. But they all bought the book. And they all started reading it. And Cheryl started reading it. And it was literally pornographic in the pages of the book. Regarding wickedness. We detach ourselves and say, oh, well, you know, it's just a novel. I mean, it's just a romance novel. I'm just reading through it. You know, I obviously don't agree with what's going on in the book. It's just a sitcom. I mean, so what if one of the guys is gay? I mean, it's, it's funny. It's really funny. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Several years ago, Cheryl and I bought a, a Honda Civic. It's actually the first brand new car we ever bought. I love that car. Great little car. Just zip around in 1988 Civic, burgundy. Great little car. Until the dashboard light came on. The little computer light. Bing! And that little light sat there and laughed at me for months. And there was nothing wrong with the car. As a matter of fact, what we found out was, when we took it in, no, there's nothing wrong with the car, but you've got a, a problem in your computer unit that's making that light come on. And the only way to fix it is going to cost you $600 for a new computer unit for your car. And I said, I'll deal with the light. Six months later, I paid for a new computer unit because that light was driving me nuts. That internal indicator light. There were other problems that were coming along with it as well. But the light was there for a reason, indicating a problem. And God gives us our hearts, our consciences. Remember we talked about on Sunday that there's the witness of creation, but there's also the witness of the conscience. Even a non-Christian person has a sense of morality of right and wrong, which is a witness to us. And the Bible says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Folks, don't ignore the indicator light. We need to pay closer attention to the things that we regard. He desires us to walk in fellowship with Him. For John goes on to say, not only that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, but 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship, not only with each other, but with God. It is a choice that we can make. And I'm not talking about salvation here, folks. I'm talking about our daily lives, how we walk. Man, when you get covered by Christ's blood, you're a saved person. But whether you walk in the light or the darkness at that point in the rest of your life, that's your call. And we can walk in the dark and wonder why God never seems to respond and why we don't really have a relationship and why Christianity just doesn't seem to make a difference for us. Or we can walk in the light as He is in the light and have fellowship with Him and other believers. So the Lord does not go down to Sodom. Second thing you notice right off the bat is where the two angels discover Lot. 
Lot sat in the gate. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now this is not a gate like the gate to the barn here. This is a big, huge city gate, massive columns, and you go through the gate. And the gate had great significance in that day and in that time. Not only was it the entrance of the city, but the custom was that people would sit, the leaders of the city, the judges, the rulers of the city would sit in the gate to make pronouncements, to give counsel and advice and judgments regarding civic law. Lot may have well have been a leader in the city of Sodom. He may have well have gotten to the point where in sitting in the gate, he was one of the judges of Sodom. Now, it didn't start right then. It actually started much earlier than this. The problem began in Genesis 13, verse 10, where it tells us Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. Genesis 13.12 says that Lot then, after lifting up his eyes, Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Genesis 14.12 says he was then living in Sodom. Then Genesis 19.1, Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. Folks, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-8 through tells us Lot was a righteous man. That he was tormented and he was distressed by what he saw. So I wonder why is he sitting in the gate? What's this all about? What's going on here? Has Lot become so entrenched in this city of sin that, that he is one of the judges that he lives there, that he's completely taking part? This righteous man? Well, a couple of possibilities. Number one is Lot was a missionary. Maybe Lot was a missionary. Maybe he considered his role in Sodom to be someone to try and change things. A change agent. Maybe someone who could make a difference. But listen to me. Even missionaries need to learn when it's time to fish and when it's time to cut bait. Even missionaries need to sometimes recognize that the Lord is saying, I just want you to come home. I want to get you out of there. Folks, there may be times in our lives where we are not up to the task of living in Sin City. There may be times in our lives where truly our, our faith walk with God is not strong enough to handle some of the temptation that's around us. And we, unlike Lot here, need to get out of the city. To back up, to say, you know what? It's just best if I don't go to that movie. It's just best if I don't sit in that bar. It's just best if I'm not around this particular group of people right now. Because every time I am, I go down. Well, maybe Lot was a missionary. It's also possible Lot was just a mercenary. Because one of the other things that happened in the city gate was commerce and trade went on there. Business took place, took place in front of the city. It's like Lot saying, I've got my faith. My, my faith is sure. But I've also got a business. I've got to run here. I've got things I've got to do. And I can make a buck in Sodom. Sodom was a bustling, busy city. As a matter of fact, some of the diggings in that area show us that literally millions of people lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, in the five cities of the plains. This was a hustling, bustling place. And Lot was in the thick of it. And Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. 
It's an either-or proposition. It's not like Lot, this, this righteous man standing with one foot toward heaven and one foot in the world. And the reality is, as we're going to see in a few moments, you cannot testify what your lifestyle denies. You can't make a difference in a place where you're living like the place. We've talked about this quite a bit just since this church began. We will not save this world by looking like this world. The church has worked so hard in the last oh, 50 years to be culturally relevant, to look like the world around us. So hard, in fact, that the difference between church and world is, is nil. It's hard to tell the difference. Someone walks in off the street. How do they know that there's something different going on here? Lot was living in Sodom, trying to say he believed in God. Who do you think believed him? Nobody. There was no difference being made there. Well, Lot sat in the gate. The third thing that you notice here is, is interesting. Just in verse 3 at the end, tells us that he prepared a feast for him. And you may recall the angels had already had one feast with Abraham. They had curds and milk and a calf. What does Lot serve? Look at your scripture. Unleavened bread. This is a first mention in scripture. It's the first time unleavened bread is mentioned. Morris in the Genesis record tells us the following. He says, in the scriptures, leaven is generally symbolic of evil doctrine or practice corrupting God's people. Leaven, being involved in the fermentation process, is a perfect symbol of decay and corruption. And Sodom and Gomorrah were decayed to the core. The next time you see, by the way, unleavened bread mentioned is in Exodus chapter 12. In fact, flip over there real quickly. Exodus 12. While you're flipping there, in a few weeks, Frank's going to be telling us a little bit more about unleavened bread and its significance as connected to what we're going to read about right now. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14. God speaking to Moses is giving the law and he says the following, Exodus 12, 14. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. This is serious business. Verse 16, on the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. Verse 17, you shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native in the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Is it coincidental, do you think, that Lot and the angels shared unleavened bread the night before he was taken out of Sodom? 
later on in Scripture, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was all about reminding the Jewish people of when God took them out of Egypt, rescued them from Egypt, pulled them out of the land of sin. Remember we talked about before that when you go to Egypt in the Bible, you always go down to Egypt and it's always kind of a picture of, of sin. Well, Lot is down in Sodom and the Lord's about to pull him out and right before he does, they share a feast of unleavened bread. Just another one of those biblical coincidences. One last thing, going back to Genesis 19, you may notice that Lot was the one who baked the unleavened bread, not his wife. Generally, that would have been a job for the wife. But it's possible here that Lot's wife was not interested in having the angels as guests in her home. Let's go back to Genesis 19, verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city... The men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot, and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may have relations with them. What do they mean, relations? Well, that all depends on what your definition of the word is, is. The angels <laughs> let that sink in. The angels did not need to wait long enough or long to determine the depth of the sin in Sodom. The angels come into the city a lot quickly and wisely says, Turn aside into my house. You don't want to spend the night in the city square. And so they turn aside to Lot's house, and the men of the city came to them, and not by the way, just for sexual relations. We're talking about a mob here. We're talking about men intent on a gang rape of other men. This is how bad things had gotten in Sodom. While across our nation, men are ignoring and repealing sodomy laws. There are some similarities here, folks, to where we live in the Sodom. Verse 6. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with a man. Please, let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. And this is absolutely shocking. Isn't it, Heather? Yeah. Being a daughter yourself, how would you feel? Your, your, dad, your dad is standing at the door telling, you know, telling the guest to go to the back room and saying, Hey, Heather, Harry. This man, Lot, is called a righteous man. In the Bible, he's called righteous. And this one and the same Lot is now picking and choosing, saying, Okay, bad thing for the angels to be messed with. So, um, girls. Unbelievable. Lot saw Sodom. He settled towards Sodom. He settled in Sodom. He sat in the gate of Sodom. And now he calls these men his siblings in Sodom. My brothers. And finally he's ready to sacrifice in Sodom. His own daughters. How messed up is this man Lot? James chapter 1 verse 15 tells us. That when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And I'll guarantee you, had it been Lot's daughters or the two, well, the two angels wouldn't have been able to be touched. But had it been Lot's daughters thrust outside, they would have been dead by morning. The intention of the men of Sodom was brutal. 
They were out for bloodlust. Sexual relations and bloodlust. This is where sin goes. This is the problem with lust. And this, folks, when we look at Lot and this man who would do such an abhorrent thing, this is what we can call frog in the kettle living. Frog in the kettle living. You, you've heard about that, where you take a frog, put him in nice cool water, set the kettle on the stove, and turn up the heat. And as the water warms up, the frog just gets comfy. Warmer and warmer and warmer until finally the frog just boils alive, doesn't even jump out of the water because he can't recognize the difference in temperature. And that's what's happened to Lot in Sodom. When he first went down there, in fact, go all the way back. When Lot first came with Abraham out of Ur and went up to Haran and, and then came on down to the Promised Land, why did Lot go with him? Is it possible that Lot was aware of God's call on Abraham's life? That Lot maybe thought, hey, this is kind of cool. Abraham's been called by God, by a real God. I, I want to go. Abraham, can I come with you? Can I, can I be part of this? The Bible says Lot was a righteous man. At some point, he had a belief experience in God. And to come out on the plane, and when he finally settles in Sodom, he really settles. It's frog and kettle living. What would make a dad do this? How could his behavior become so bizarre? Well, I have looked and looked at this this week. Trying to understand Lot. Trying to find an explanation in Scripture for what he did in offering his daughters. Is there anything in Scripture that would explain this? Or help us to understand what's really going on here. No. <laughs> There's not. It is what it is. Lot was going to send his daughters out. He really was. Now, in Oriental customs, there, there wasn't a, a sense of offering protection to somebody who came in under your roof. But not at the expense of your family. Never at the expense of of your family here's the bottom line folks Lot is messed up Lot is sin soaked he is a sin soaked righteous guy how does that look? well you're kind of looking at it right now folks we're sin soaked righteous people all of us I would never send my daughters outside like that no you probably wouldn't you probably wouldn't but we've all done something. Yeah, but nothing that extreme. Listen, Lot is absolutely messed up. But I want to ask you a question in your life, going back to the things we regard with our hearts. What is it for you right now that used to be unacceptable, but has become acceptable? What in your life was something that used to offend you, but now just doesn't really bother you anymore? Like frogs in the kettle. Like Lot, we've got to check our hearts. Pay attention to what's going on around us. Think about the things that used to shock you, but are completely acceptable right now. It's called desensitization, and it's what our culture has done to the church. It's kind of like living in California. Cheryl and I grew up there, and I never realized how bad the smog was till I flew in to LAX from out of state. Never realized it. I mean, you kind of got used to the brown horizon. You just did. You got used to wandering around. It's not like you saw smog right in front of your face, but sometimes you can look out at the mountains. And, and we lived toward the ocean, so it, there wasn't smog out that way. We didn't know. I didn't realize that as a kid, when I'd go swimming in our swimming pool for two, three hours in the day, that my chest hurt. I didn't understand why my chest hurt. It was smog. My chest never hurts when I go swimming here. 
flew in, and as we saw L.A., and I was coming back home from Texas. I'd been in school and in college there. I was really looking forward to getting back to California, my homeland, you know. And I look out the window. L.A.'s below us. Where? Uh-huh. Through that thick brown stuff. I mean, it would, you couldn't even see. And we kind of came into it, and I saw it swirl up around the airplane as we came into the smog. And that's what's going on with Lot here. He's not even aware of the depth of the sin all around him. How do we avoid this? How do we as Christians avoid this kind of desensitization? What do we do? Let me give you a word picture here. We come to the armory. We come to the armory. Look in your Bibles at Ephesians chapter 6. Gang, this is so critical. It is so critical we understand this and learn to live by these principles. Because we do live in a world that will drag us down. Yeah, but, but Rick, you say I'm, I'm saved if I, if I believe in Jesus, right? Yeah, right. But that doesn't mean your life won't get oppressed, won't get dragged down. It doesn't mean that you can't be rendered ineffective for the kingdom. It also doesn't mean that you can completely avoid the pitfalls and snares and tragedies of life Unless you come to the armory, Ephesians 6.13, Paul says, Therefore take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm, verse 14, Stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Truth, not relativism, not hey, whatever you want to believe is cool. The movie Secondhand Lions. I don't know if I mentioned this in here yet. One of my favorite movies. Great movie. Cool movie. Really, especially for men. I mean, it's just a guy's movie, you know. Women like it too. But I mean, it's, it's got a real message to, to boys growing up into manhood. Until you get into the middle of the movie. And one of the older of the two older uncles is talking to this young boy. And the young boy says, I, I need to know if this is the truth or not. I'm not going to give it away in case you haven't seen it. I need to know if this is true or not. And he said, why? It doesn't matter if it's true. You just need to believe it. And I went, oh, oh, that's our culture. It doesn't matter if it's true. You just got to believe it. Whatever you want to believe in is great. Truth or no truth doesn't matter. What matters is how you feel about it. Parents raise their children that way. Oh, let them find their own truth. Do you realize what you're saying? Let them find their own truth. There's one truth. And Paul says, gird your loins with truth. And he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. How do we get righteous? Through faith in God's grace. Verse 15, having shod your feet. We don't use the word shod enough these days. I tell the kids in the morning, hey, shod your feet and get in the car. Shod your feet, shut your mouth, get in the car. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How can you do that? This is a word picture here. How do I shod my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace? Well, you kind of have to know what the gospel is, don't you? Do you know the gospel? I'm not asking for, for answers right now, but ask yourself the question. If someone came up to you and said, hey, tell me the gospel, could you do it? Do you know the simple gospel of Jesus Christ? Could you tell someone what the gospel is? Shod your feet with the gospel of peace. Verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Which implies to me that if you do not have the shield of faith, you will not be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. If your faith is not growing, if your faith is not being stretched, 
If you're not living life in such a way that, that your world causes you to have to trust God, then you may not be able to fend off the arrows of the evil one. And Paul says, take the helmet of salvation. This stuns me. How many Christians I talk to who do not know for sure that they're saved? Are unsure of my... You know what? I know I'm saved. I have absolutely no doubt. None whatsoever. Why? Because you studied the Bible a lot, Rick? No. Because I know... Well, yeah, I guess it is because I studied the Bible a lot. That's definitely part of it. But I know that I'm saved. Well, because I've gone back to Scripture, I've prayed about it, I've looked, I've made sure that I'm saved. And the Holy Spirit convicts me of my salvation, reminds me of it. And if you're not sure, well, talk to me after we're done tonight. Because the Bible tells us that's the whole point. So you can know that you're saved. John wrote, that's why these things are written, so that you can know that you have eternal life. Finally, Paul writes, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 18, he also says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times, at all times, at all times, in the Spirit. I heard something the other day that I just could not even believe, listening to Christian radio. And uh, it was a, a statistic that was given in Christianity Today recently. 80% of evangelical churches no longer offer midweek Bible studies citing lack of interest. 80% don't have, of churches in America today, do not have a midweek Bible study like what we're doing right now. 80%! 8 of 10 churches! Which conversely means... I'm a mathematician genius here. Two out of ten churches offer midweek Bible teaching. The rest do not. And we wonder why there's confusion in the church. And we wonder why the morality in the church and the morality in the world looks the same. It's frog in the kettle. And the church is in the kettle. Guys, listen. God's word, and you know this, ignites passion. God's word ignites fiery desire for righteous living. You get into his word and, ah! As Jeremiah said, it's like a fire in my bones. I get weary trying to hold it in. I have to let it out. And I'll tell you what, if it was me and Cheryl in here on Wednesday nights, I would be here every Wednesday night because of what it does in my life. Now, I love you all very much. And I really enjoy getting to teach. And I'm really thrilled that you want to hear God's word. But selfishly, I would do it anyway. If I had five people in the barn. Well, ten. After that, I'd get out. (laughs) I don't just enjoy our midweek Bible study, folks. I need it. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 19. Verse 9. Lot obviously was missing his church's midweek Bibles. Oh, Lot probably didn't even have a church there in Sodom. Yeah. No Bible study for him. Verse 9. So he says, you know, take my daughters and leave these men alone because they come under the shelter of my roof. Verse 9. But they said, the men of the city, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. 
Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. You know what they're saying? Who are you to judge us? Who are you, Lot? What, you think you're one of our judges now? Oh, Mr. Good Guy. Mr. Righteous. You know what the favorite verse of non-Christians is? I've heard it quoted by more non-Christians than, than any other verse. Matthew 7.1 Judge not that you not be judged. Hey, aren't you Christians not... You're not supposed to judge us, are you? Here's the deal, folks. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, your very life will stand in judgment of the world around you. It's going to happen. People will look at you and they'll say, You self-righteous jerk. Well, they may not say it out loud, but they, they'll get uncomfortable around you. They'll start to tell that one joke and you walk up and they'll go, ah. Judge not that you not be judged. Just telling a joke here. It's not a big deal. Now, I'm just saying, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, I do think there's a, a certain level of person who can live in Christ Jesus. A difference between living in Christ Jesus and living godly in Christ Jesus. How, how's that? Well, there are a lot of us who live in Christ. I mean, we're, we're Christians, church-going folk. You know, we, we get there when we can and, and we, we claim to be Christians. But to live godly in Christ Jesus, even other Christians get uncomfortable with that. Have you ever noticed that? That's the weirdest thing in the world to me. When as a Christian person you're trying to make a righteous decision... And another Christian goes, oh, come on. We all understand each other here. It's not that big a deal. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul says you're going to be persecuted for it. Your very life will bring judgment on those around you, whether you open your mouth and say anything or not. Verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. The men now are the two angels. Brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. I love what they do here. Verse 11. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. But look at this. So that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. I don't know about you, but if I was one of those sin-sick men in the city of Sodom, say that three times fast, I think if I was struck blind, I'd probably try to grope my way home. I don't think I would still be trying to get in the door. See how simple these guys are? How motivated they are to commit some heinous act of evil? They have been struck blind and they're still trying to find the door so they can get in and do what they came to do. Remember, Abraham and God had that conversation and Abraham said... Shall the Lord of all the earth not deal justly? Well, I think we're seeing the justice in God's decision to destroy this city. It's kind of like that scene in Old Yeller. Have you ever seen Old Yeller? Mm -hmm. I made a, a horrendous mistake. And I showed it to Corey and Hannah when they were young. Oh. Hayden's not going to see it till he's 25. And even then I'm going to have a therapist nearby. Because that movie... Who cried? Okay, thank you. At that point, Old Yeller gets rabies. He's in the barn. He's sick. He's frothing at the mouth. He is going to kill anything that comes near him. And Travis has to go out with the gun and put him down. God is putting Sodom down. Putting Sodom and Gomorrah out of their misery. 
They are beyond healing here. They're beyond help. He has to put them down. Well, this just keeps getting more bizarre. Verse 12. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. A couple of destroying angels here. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Now why is that? Because Lot had lost all credibility. He couldn't witness to them. To them it was just a joke. He, he, he was laughable. Oh, the old man, he's just messing with us. Come on, Dad. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They had such a relationship with Lot that they could not even believe him when his faith finally did try to break through and do something good. That's the impact of Sodom on Lot's life. I said before, you cannot testify what your lifestyle denies. If you live a certain lifestyle that goes against the teaching of God's word, you can't testify God's word because no one's going to buy it. People look at what you do at school, in business, at work, at home, your family. They will look at your life first and then they'll listen to what you have to say. And Lot couldn't say a thing. What do I do if I feel like I've lost that credibility? Talk to different people who have come to Christ later in life and feel like they lost that credibility with their children. Maybe even grown children. Maybe some of you have grown children that you're concerned about. That, that you, you know, some are. That, you know, <laughs> that you're not sure that, that you did the right thing with. That you're wondering where they're at with God. What do you do when you feel like you've lost the credibility? Folks, listen. Don't you dare wallow in guilt over that. Don't dare. Don't sit at home and think, Oh, I lost my chance. Wrong. You start now and you rebuild credibility in Jesus. And you live your life for Jesus. And you would be surprised, you'd be stunned at how a life change later in life can impact children raised in a house without Jesus. Don't wallow in guilt. Determine to walk with God. If you wallow in guilt, if you just feel sorry for yourself because you didn't live the kind of life you wish you could around friends at one time or family members, all you will do is deny them further opportunity to meet Jesus. So don't do it. Determine to walk with God. Verse 15 tells us that when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot. By the way, it's interesting right here. Um, the men of the square show up at night in the dark. God waited even to do his punishment until the morning because God, his work is of the light. Men of Sodom, the work of sin is at night. A bomb blast went off again. Last night in Baghdad, took down a hotel, and you probably saw it on the news. It amazes me how much evil takes place in the darkness at night. Well, it's morning now. And even though the work of God here that is going to be done is terrifying, it is still in the light of day. The angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. That word punishment, by the way, is the Hebrew word avon, not avon, so ladies, you're okay. It's avon, which means iniquity. So literally what it says here is 
Take your wife and two daughters, get out of here, or you will be swept away in the iniquity of the city. Now that's kind of a different spin on it. In other words, what's going on, folks, is that the sin of Sodom was overflowing and it was already sweeping the people away with it. The sin had, had bubbled up to such a degree that the people were drowning in it. And God's righteous judgment on them was because of the sin. The sweeping away was because of the sin. Physically, God reigned, God reigned fire. Spiritually, sin is what swept them away. Verse 16, going on. But he hesitated. After all this, Lot hesitated. Angels come into his house. They have unleavened bread together. The men bang at his door, try to get the angels outside to take them down. The angels blind the men. I mean, that's a pretty incredible witness right there. Lot finally gets it right. He goes out, tries to save his sons-in-law. None of them will listen to him. The angel now says, all right, look, it's time to go. Let's get out. And Lot hesitated. Now? Are you sure? Gotta go? I mean, he hesitated. So what they do? <laughs> the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him whether he deserved it or not. <laughs> and they brought him out and they put him outside the city. Why does Lot hesitate? Because Sodom still has a hold of him. Lot, this righteous man, Sodom has a hold of him, a tight hold. Now look closely, the angel sees Lot, his wife, his daughters, and what caused that? It was the compassion, the mercy of the Lord. At that moment, folks, I think I would have just said, all right, dude, you want to stay here? Fine, I'm out of here. Enjoy the barbecue. I would have been gone. The compassion of the Lord seized him and pulled him out. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Perfect justice, ultimate mercy. Second Peter chapter two verse seven said, "If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and I've always thought the word unprincipled there was a little lacking, <laughs> you know, unprincipled men. There were unprincipled men outside my door wanting to rape my daughters and my guests. Unprincipled." <laughs> Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now after all we've seen of Lot's behavior still, and I just got to press this point, he is still called righteous. After all of this, as bizarre as he may be, he's still called righteous. Yes, he is, but there's even more. Not only is Lot called righteous, but Peter goes so far as to use Lot as a picture of the rescue of God's people in the last days, in the rapture. Lot is a type of the rapture of the church. Lot. Now I probably ought to take this moment to say that, you know, we've, I've railed on the church a bit over the last few weeks. It's funny, when you get into scripture, it challenges you. You need to know I love the church. I love the church. I love Christianity worldwide. If I wasn't so concerned about where the church in our country, in our world is today, I wouldn't even say a thing about it. But the church is messed up. It is. 
And mark my words, as hard as we try, and we're going to try, as much as we listen to the Spirit, as much time as we're going to spend in the Word, we're going to make some mistakes here at the bridge as well. We're going to mess up. Prayerfully, we will be in the Word enough and with the Spirit enough that we recognize that and repent of it, confess it, move forward in the Lord. But the church is a messed up thing, just like Lot. is a messed up guy. But God still pulled him out because he's righteous. Listen, before God brings the entire world under fiery judgment, he pulls out the perfect? No. He pulls out the good people? No. He's going to pull out the religious people? No. God will pull out believers, people of faith. Lot did have faith. He did believe. That's why he's called righteous. It certainly wasn't based in his behavior. God is going to pull out the people of faith. Why will anybody go up in the rapture at that time? Because God is compassionate. And God is merciful to anyone who believes. Folks, hang your hat on this. We are justified by faith. We are saved by grace. This is the key to righteousness. Verse 17. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life! Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Now the word picture here is it's stunning. You know, people, people sometimes will look at Christians and say, Okay, you're, you're just a bunch of left behind end times junkies. You've all got your Tim LaHaye books out there and you're all into the rapture. It's all just escapism. Why don't you deal with the real world? You're just a bunch of escapists. That's exactly right. Sign me up. I am an escapist. I want to escape. Take me out. I'm ready to go right now. Jesus said in Luke 21 verse 36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Personally, I want to escape. I want to stand before the Son of Man. But but where are we going to escape to is the question here. And this is kind of cool. Look at what the angels told Lot. Escape to the mountains. Don't stay in the valley. You escape to the mountains. Get to the mountains. That's where you need to go. Where am I going to stand when I stand before the Son of Man? I am going to escape to the mountain. You want to jot this down if you're taking notes. Five important mountains in Scripture. Five mountains to be aware of. There are more, but we're just going to look at five. First of all is Mount Moriah. Genesis chapter 22. We'll be there in a couple of weeks. Mount Moriah. This is the mountain of obedience. This is where Abraham will be called by God to take his son Isaac, go up on the mountain, and sacrifice Isaac as a proof of his faith and trust in the Lord. We'll see that story. Abraham does obey, and by the way, that is the moment in Abraham's life, the crowning, the pinnacle of Abraham's faith, on Mount Moriah, the mountain of obedience. Second mountain, Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19. You know the story, the people of Israel all come out of Egypt and they end up gathering at Sinai. And it's there that Moses is given the law. Mount Sinai is the mountain of instruction. The mountain of instruction. Where Moses gets the law, where he's trained in righteousness, where he's told these are the things that you are to observe to be my people, to truly be set apart. Moriah is the mountain of obedience. Sinai is the mountain of instruction. 
And the next mountain, Mount Hermon. Matthew 17, Mount Hermon, the mountain of transfiguration. The mountain of transfiguration. This is the mountain of Jesus' glory. When Jesus went up with the three, Peter, James, and John, gets up on the mountain and is transfigured. The mountain of transfiguration, Mount Hermon, Matthew 17. Matthew 27, number 4, Mount Calvary. You know what happened on Mount Calvary. That is the mountain of passion. It's the cross. And by the way, the place where Jesus was crucified... Mount Calvary, we call it, was the same place where Abraham offered Isaac. It's Mount Moriah, one and the same mountain. Folks, this is the life that God invites us to. This is the life that God calls us to. He calls us to the mountains by obedience and for instruction and for, literally in our lives, transfiguration. So that we can have the passion of Christ. And finally, the fifth mountain, Hebrews chapter 12, tells us about Mount Zion. Which is the mountain of glorification. The mountain of the second coming of Jesus. Listen to this, Hebrews 12.22. The Bible says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church uh, and the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven. I really like that phrase. Registered in heaven. Just show up at the front desk and go, yeah, my name's in the registry. Just check it out. The name of the registry is the book of life. That's how you get registered in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. I like that too. Just men made perfect. Hey, I'm just a guy made perfect. Just Rick made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We have come to the mountain. What's amazing about this passage in Hebrews is it's not future tense. It's not, hey, hang in there and you will come to the mountain. You will come to Mount Zion. The Hebrew writer says you have come to Mount Zion. You're there. I love the example John Corson gives for this. He talks about driving his kids down from Oregon down to Disneyland. And all the way down there, they pick at each other and they punch each other and they're hot and sweaty and it's a long drive and there's that stretch through the grapevine in California that's really long and, and it's just annoying and they're bickering at everybody. And then all of a sudden, they're on I-5, coming down, they look to the right, there's Disneyland. And you know how you can see it? The Matterhorn. Matterhorn sticking up on the side of the road and all of a sudden, the kids are perfect angels because they're there. Now, they're not in the park yet. They're not riding the Matterhorn yet, but they are there. And suddenly the last 10-15 minutes of the ride is perfect. It's wonderful because they've arrived. And folks, we are at Mount Zion. We have come to the Matterhorn. Mount Zion. (laughs) We are present, standing at the foot of the mountain, ready to go up. And Jesus says, man... Pray that you'll have escape, strength to escape these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, back to Genesis 19. The story gets even more unbelievable. Even more incredible. In the middle of this amazingly merciful rescue, Lot still clings to the region. Look at verse 18. Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Remember, they just said, Go to the mountains. No, no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. 
Yeah. And you have magnified your loving kindness, uh -huh. which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it's small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small? Let me run to this other town that my life may be saved. Verse 21, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the town was called Zoar. Zoar, which means little one. Small town. Of the five towns of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, two other towns, and Zoar. Little tiny town. And Lot says, can I just run to Zoar? I don't have the strength to go to the mountains. I don't want to run to the mountains. Listen, the angels who pulled him out, who blinded the guys who were a danger to him earlier, and who now pull him out of Sodom to rescue his life, don't you think maybe they could have helped him get to the mountain? But just like Lot, we prefer small town living over mountainous life experiences. That is the way of our faith. Our faith is about small towns, little things. Oh, I'm going to set my alarm and get up and make it to church Sunday morning. Wow. That's a huge step of faith. Now, I just, for someone it may be. For someone it might very well be. But we're just like Lot. You know, I mean, I see the mountain, Lord, and I know you're calling me to the mountain, and I know what you want me to experience bigger things. But gosh, I just like the small town. Kind of enjoy, you know, a cup of coffee at the local dive with my friends in the small town. That's where I want to live my life, in the small town. Gang, God calls us to the mountain, to a life that, that is bizarre, expansive, wonderful, only God can do it type faith. Faith is that kind of an adventure. It's a wild ride. But faith is also my choice. And it's your choice. You can choose a small town, and God will still protect you. He protected Lot and Zoar, little one, little town. But you can also have the mountain. You can also experience a life that is full of faith. Jesus says this, and I truly believe this. I don't think there's a one of us alive on earth who, who believe it enough to make it happen. But I think if we could, we could do this. Matthew 21, 21. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what is done to the fig tree, which he had just withered, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Well, that's, a, that's a cool metaphor, isn't it? No, I think Jesus is being completely honest here. Hey, if you had enough faith, you could do that. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that just be awesome? Mount Baker! <laughs> Man of faith. Yeah, and then the mountain lands on me. Jesus says, Ask all things in prayer believing. Believing. And you will receive. Do you want to have an expansive faith? A growing faith? A mountainous faith? Or do you want to live in a small town? John Cougar lives in a small town. You could live there. Folks, the life my beloved Jesus calls me to is one of wonder and joy and challenge and thrill on the mountain. But Lot wanted to go to Zoar. Verse 23, and so it begins. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to little town, Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. 
And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The word overthrow here is used in other places in the Bible to indicate earthquakes. Get a sense of what's going on here in this destruction. Some have conjectured that as the Lord sent fire and brimstone from the heavens, He also cracked open the earth in earthquakes, sending up all kinds of sulfurs and hydrocarbons, which were then ignited with the fire that was coming down, having an almost nuclear-like explosive property to it, decimating the entire region. We say Sodom and Gomorrah. Folks, it was the cities of the plain. It wasn't just the two cities. It was every city there except Zoar. And the only thing that saved Zoar was little Lot was living in that little town. That was where Lot ran. Zoar, by the way, is still there. Still in the Middle East today. Still goes by that name. That little town still exists. Amazing. Uh, by the way, this is the first mention of the word fire in the Bible. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire. It's the first time you see that word used in the Bible. Why is that interesting? Because the first time fire is used, is used in conjunction with judgment. And fire throughout Scripture, you will discover, is a picture of God's righteous, burning judgment. Jude verse 7 says, and this is the New King James Version, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh... See, it's not strange flesh when it's a man and a woman. Beyond that, it gets bizarre. It's strange. But having gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, this region, interesting today, Arabs call this area, the whole area, the Sea of Lot. I'll tell you something about the Middle East that we have not figured out in our very fast-paced culture today. There is a tremendous patience in the Middle East. One of the things that has been brought up about terrorists is that they are willing to wait. They are very patient. They don't have to retaliate immediately. They will take their time. So we had the World Trade Center bombings. When did that happen the first time in the garage? 92, 93? And it was all the way to 2001 before the planes attacked. For us, we'd already almost forgotten about the first bomb. That wasn't even a factor in daily American life, but for the Middle Eastern terrorist, who was a patient person, they were working toward it that whole time. In the Middle East, people remember. Zoar is still there. People remember. They call it the Sea of Lot. It's the region of the Dead Sea. Now listen to this. At the south end of the sea, there is a great mountain of rock salt. Apparently this mountain is five miles long and it's hundreds of feet high and it's called by Arabs Jebel Ustum meaning Mount of Sodom because even the Arabs of that region have not forgotten what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about this. This place that's the Sea of Lot called Mount Sodom this region of, of death and destruction it is probably the same region that the Bible called the Valley of Siddim. And the Valley of Siddim literally means the Valley of Cultivated Fields. Remember, Lot looked down on that valley when given the choice of the whole land and saw that it was well watered and lush and green and beautiful. 
And Lot said, that's the place to raise cattle. That's the place to raise my sheep. That's the place to raise my family. Maybe not so with the family. But it was a beautiful, lush, gorgeous land. But if you go there today, it's arid, parched, cracked, and nothing, and I mean nothing, grows there. Even now, some 4,000 years later. The Dead Sea literally overflows with salt. And this region is the lowest spot on the Earth's surface, some 1,286 feet below sea level. This place got blasted. Something catastrophic obviously happened here. By the way, did you see who happened to cause this fiery overthrow? Look back at the verse again, verse 24. It tells us the Lord... Jehovah is the word, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. We have two pictures, at least two people of the Trinity here. The Lord rained down the fire from the Lord who's in heaven. Wait a minute, wasn't the Lord on earth with Abraham talking to him? Yeah, Jehovah. Look back in verse, chapter 18, verse 1. Now the Lord, Jehovah appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. The Lord came down, appeared in human form, the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe, and is speaking with Abram, Abraham. And in the next chapter, as Sodom and Gomorrah are being destroyed, the Lord, present there in Hebron, rains down fire from the Lord in heaven. Ow. I don't get it. I don't understand. Why did Jesus go up on the mountain and pray to God if Jesus was God? Why? That makes no sense to me. Why would he do that? What is it with this Trinity thing? How can God be here and be there working together to destroy there? Does anybody else understand this? Can we shed some light on this? I don't understand. Here's the point. You shouldn't be able to. We should not be able to understand our omnipresent God. He is, after all, God. And a God small enough for my puny mind to completely comprehend is no God at all. Gang, I don't want a God that I can completely understand. I understand my children. I understand my family. I understand my wife. I get them. Well, most of the time. I don't understand God. I love Him. I know that He loves me. I saw Him love me so much that He died on a cross for me. I don't even understand that fully. What motivated Him to do that? But gang, He is God. And it's good to know that God can be here and there at the same time. Why is that? Because Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Wherever you are, you may be in the most lonely place you have ever been in your life. Broken, tired, beat up, bedraggled. You may be in that place where you think there's not a single person on earth who possibly knows where you are at. And in those times, you can remember Jesus saying, I'm with you always. And what's amazing is that God can be with less in the same exact moment that He is with me. In the same moment that He is with Becky and Jeff and Charlene. 
That's the kind of God that I want to worship. That's the kind of God that my heart desires to know. Now, back to the passage. Speaking of puny minds, verse 26. But his wife, from behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. This has always been one of those real upsetting verses in Scripture. All she did was look. Wouldn't you? I mean, you're leaving, you hear, boom, smack, kabam, kablooey, and you go, you just want to see it. Who didn't turn on the TV when, when the war began in Iraq? Who didn't, when the explosions went off, go, ooh, that was big. It's not good, it's war, but it was kind of cool. Boom. All she did was look back. What's the big deal? And I'm afraid I'd be a pillar of salt standing right beside her. A couple of salt pillars there. Lot's wife, folks, wasn't looking back with curiosity. She was looking back with longing. You see, she had left her heart in, San, I mean, in, in Sodom. She left her heart in Sodom. She was still living there. She never really left it at all. And you know what Jesus had to say about this? Luke chapter 17, verse 30. I'll just read this to you. It will be just the same on that day that the Son of Man is revealed. Listen to this. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Good words. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. And Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Don't you forget Lot's wife. Remember what happened to this woman who wanted to keep her life. Lot was at least a little better. He at least was willing to go to Littletown. You know, I mean, it was a step of faith. Not much, but enough to get him out. Lot's wife didn't want to let go of her life. And because she wouldn't let go of it, she lost it. And Jesus says, that's what you've got to remember. Do not look back. Look up. Because your salvation is drawing near. The sun is coming. Don't look back. Verse 27. Now Abraham... Back to Abraham in Hebron. He arose early in the morning and he went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. What do you think Abraham was thinking in this moment? He didn't know if Lot had gotten out. He had no idea what was going on. All he knew was that the land was destroyed. And with a heavy heart, Abraham looks out over it. You're going to see in the next chapter, I believe that this impacted Abraham so much that though he had dwelt a long time by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron, he ups and moves away. Because this was so tragic. These are real lives, real people that we're talking about here. Verse 29, thus it came about, when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew 
the cities in which Lot lived. At this point, Abraham knew that the judge of all the earth had indeed dealt justly. But what of his nephew Lot? Notice this, folks. It was not Lot's faith alone that saved him. It was Abraham's intercession that also saved him. Lot had just barely enough faith. Barely. To merit salvation. Barely. But I believe Abraham's intercession pushed that faith just far enough in God's eyes. Don't stop praying for people to know the Lord. People you know in your world, in your life, who you think, man, they are so deep in Sodom that they're sitting at the gate and they're living like judges. They are right there. That's where their life is. How will they ever come to know the Lord? How will they ever be a person of faith? Are they lost? Are they saved? I have no idea. Pray for them. And don't stop. Intercede for them on their behalf before the Lord in the same way that Abraham actually took time to bend the Lord's ear for Lot. James 5.16 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So keep praying for that friend, for that son or daughter, that co-worker. Don't give up. You keep interceding. Verse 30. Well, verse 30 tells us that Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains. He caught a clue. Little town wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. And his two daughters with him. Oh, here's the reason. It wasn't for faith. It was because he was afraid to stay in Zoar and he stayed in a cave. He and his two daughters. And quickly... What are we doing? Hang with me just a minute longer. Quickly, this reminds me of another guy who goes up to the mountains and stays in a cave. You can read about it in your own time, 1 Kings chapter 19. The greatest prophet of Israel, Elijah. Elijah comes out of this phenomenal experience where he calls down, he prays down, he goes to the Lord and asks for fire from heaven to take down his sacrifice. And it works, and Elijah slays 400 of the prophets of Baal. And then one woman, Jezebel, wife of King Ahab, Jezebel gets fuming mad and says, that's it, I want Elijah's head on a platter. And Elijah goes, I've gone too far. And he runs. Like a frightened child, this great man of God runs to the mountain and hides out in the cave, just like Lot. The cave in the mountains. And God comes along and says, Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing in a cave? You're on the mountain. But you're hiding out in a cave. What are you doing? Elijah says, I, I'm all alone. And God says, no, no there are 7,000 people down there who believe as well. I have a remnant. You know, in the entire history of the world, there have always been people who believed in God. Always a remnant. Even as we studied before, when it got down to eight people, Noah's family, and God pulled them out. God always has a people. And God tells Elijah, get out of the cave, man, and stand on the mountain. Folks, God does not call us to the mountain to hide out in caves. Listen, I, I want to... I don't want to read that here yet. Yeah. Song of Psalms, or Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8. What is God doing on the mountain? Think about this in, this, in this mountain metaphor we've been using. Where is the Lord in all this? Listen to Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8. The voice of my beloved, 
Behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He's gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, and the rains are over and gone. The flower appear, flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs. And the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. What's going on here? God, the bridegroom, he's leaping on the mountains. He's skipping among the hills. And he's calling the bride, the church, leap with me. Dance with me on the mountains of faith. Let your life be an extravagant joy, jumping and dancing and leaping with me. It's a rapturous, romantic life that God calls us to. Not this, not this picture. I don't know who came up with this picture in the world of, of just boring, staid Christianity. Just, you know, gotta go to church. It's gonna be hard. Those wooden pews, and we're gonna sit there, and by golly, we're gonna learn the Word of God. <laughs> what, where have we lost the romance? Come with me, my love. Come away. Dance with me. Let's jump on the mountains. Let's leap it. The flowers are out. Oh, the fig tree's getting green. Come on. Taste the fruit. Man, we got to get back in love with the bridegroom. If you get stuck in the cave of depression or despair, despair or doubt or disbelief, well, man, listen to the voice of the bridegroom. And come out of the cave and dance in the mountains. Verse 31. Let's finish this out real quickly. What is Lot doing in the cave? You're not going to believe it. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. This is his daughter speaking. And there's not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Interesting way that that's put. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. Did I mention that tonight's study was NC-17? Mention that? So, verse 33, they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Verse 34, on the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with the old man, with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. Made him drink wine. It was, you know, Lot saying, No, no, don't give me the wine. Yeah. They made him drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both of the daughters of Lot were with child by their father the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab and he is the father of the Moabites to this day as for the younger she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami and he is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day hadn't these girls learned anything from Sodom and the answer is yes they had they had learned everything from Sodom a great deal too much 
Sodom was the land of their education. Now the offspring of this degrading act are the Moabites and the Ammonites, who you will see quite a bit being problematic for Israel, for God's people. They're going to join the people in the line of Ishmael and the people in the line of Esau and, and a lot of the Arabic peoples who would constantly be at odds with the people of Abraham, the Israelites. It's not a story with a happy ending. I came to the end of this and I thought, okay, I've got to find something here. Kind of pick us back up after that. And there's nothing there. As a matter of fact, as far as Lot goes, we're not going to hear about him again. Aside from the New Testament references to what happened at Gomorrah, you will not see another mention of Lot in the scriptures historically. He disappears. Is Lot saved? Well, he was saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. Will Lot be in heaven? I have no idea. Does he have faith enough? I hope so. May the Lord simply give us wisdom from this reading tonight. I do want to read you one last passage. Just listen to this and place it in context of what we've just studied. 1 Thessalonians 5.1 Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night. Listen to that. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we will live together with him therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing